Hey, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew uh, 27? Thank you. We're starting a brand new series today called Red Letter Day, and uh, this series is going to take us over the next five weeks all the way up to Easter weekend, uh, Easter weekend being April 23rd and uh, April 24th this year. Uh, if, in case you haven't heard, uh, we've got a really important announcement to make this morning. I want to make you aware that this year, Easter weekend, we're going to be doing something a little different uh, than we normally do or that we've done in the past. But uh, this year, we're going to be offering five identical worship services on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, we're really excited about that. We're, uh, we believe that it's going to be an amazing weekend and that we're going to see a, a number of people here at Genesis Church. And so we're going to have our regular services on Sunday at 8.30, 9.45, and 11.15. Uh, but for this year, on Saturday, for Easter Sunday, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, be the 23rd, uh, we're going to have services at 4.30 and 6 p.m. All right, so Saturday at 4.30 and 6 p.m., and then our three services on Sunday, five identical services. Uh, we want to make sure that we're making room for all those who will come uh, to be a part of what's going to be an awesome uh, Easter weekend here at Genesis Church. Uh, when you came in today, you may have received a, an invite card as you were walking through the door. And I want to point out uh, that if you look in the seat backs around you, there are more of these. We've got some back at the Info Hub. Uh, you might find them popping up in some mysterious places, but we're calling these our invite cards. And uh, we want to make sure that you have one or five or ten, however you many, many you need, uh, because I believe there's somebody in your life that you're supposed to be, invite to come to church with you. Uh, I, I believe that people are more open uh, to the idea of coming to visit a church on Easter weekend than uh, any other weekend throughout the year. And so I believe there might be somebody in your life uh, who's waiting for your invitation. So this is your, uh, this is your conversation starter. This is your piece uh, that you get to take with you, that you get to hand to someone and say, hey, I don't know what you're doing on Saturday the 23rd or on Sunday the 24th, but would you consider uh, coming and being a part of our church service with us, coming and being a part uh, of what's going to be an awesome celebration. Now, here's what I need you to do. Uh, not only to invite people uh, to be at one of these services with us, but I'm going to ask those of you who call Genesis Church your home to do something for us. Uh, again, we want to make sure that there's as much room as possible uh, for our friends. And so I'm going to ask you if you would consider attending on Saturday at our 4.30 or our 6 o'clock service or on Sunday at 8.30 uh, because we know that 9.45 and 11.15 on Sunday are going to be the most optimal hours that some of our guests are going to attend. And we want to make sure there's as much room as possible for them. Uh, so would you be thinking about that? Would you step up to the plate with us? You always do. And maybe consider attending one of those services, 4.30 and 6 on Saturday or 8.30 on Sunday morning. And then we're going to need you to serve too, and uh, we'll be talking about those, that in the weeks to come. We're also going to do something special on Good Friday this year, uh, and we're going to do Good Friday on Friday. Imagine that. Uh, but it's going to be a come and go experience uh, that'll be open, I think, from 11 in the morning till 7 or 7.30 in the evening, uh, where we're going to invite you to come in your own time, and we're going to have some stations set up here for you. Uh, it's going to be a really neat event, and uh, we look forward to you being able to participate uh, with us in that too. So make sure you get an invite card or two or three before before you go today, who are you going to invite? Uh, we'll keep talking about this in the uh, weeks to come. But I'm excited to uh, start this series today, this series called Red Letter Day, uh, because I really believe uh, that this series, even starting today, 
has the potential uh, to touch many people in some really great and some awesome ways. We're calling it Red Letter Day. Now, what is that? Uh, You may have a Bible that if you look on the side, you may or might not have a Bible that says Red Letter Version. What that simply means is that whenever Jesus speaks, uh, the words are in red. The the font is in red so that you can easily identify it. And and so we're doing this series called Red Letter Day because over the next five weeks, we're going to look at five of the final statements that Jesus made while he was hanging on the cross at Calvary. And these are are deep, powerful statements uh, with a lot of meaning behind them. So red letter day. Now, again, if you've got your Bibles, Matthew 27, uh, beginning in verse 37, uh, follow along with me as we kind of set up this scene, uh, a scene that maybe we're familiar with, uh, but a scene that I'm praying that maybe God opens your eyes in a new way uh, to a very familiar story. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 37, says this, above his head, They placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, I don't think that they're trying to to really boost his confidence in this moment. This is a way of mocking Jesus. Verse 38 says, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. We're going to talk about these gentlemen in the weeks to come. Uh, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Uh, Come down from the cross if you really think that you are the son of God. Verse 41, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, they mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from that cross and we will believe in him. Now notice these words here in verse 43. He trusts in God. He trusts in God. But let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. You know, sitting here 2,000 years ago, it's hard to look back and believe that people would actually speak to Jesus this way. Now, if you and I were in the crowd uh, 2,000 years ago, the same day that they crucified Jesus, I think it's likely that we would have said some of the same things or we would have treated Jesus the same way or at least let's say that we would have thought some of the things that the people in the crowd were thinking. Things like, where is this God of his now? You know, where is this one that he's been talking about and how powerful and how great he is? I mean, if you had put some hope in Jesus up to this point at Calvary, there's a good chance that all of that hope came crashing down on this day. I mean, he went out of his way to help so many, but here at this moment, it appears that he can't even help himself. And if you would have seen his physical condition, it would have challenged you, it would have disturbed you even more so. Scripture gives us a fairly good account of what they put him through. Uh, They took off all of his clothes and whipped him 39 times with a whip that likely contained pieces of metal and glass and other sharp objects. Historians say that it wasn't uncommon for a beating like this uh, to be designed in such a way that it would tear the flesh away from someone's back to the point that the bones were exposed and even the internal organs. And, And in most cases, the victim never survived the beating. And so this is the condition of Jesus. On the cross. I mean, this is what he's endured so far. He's black and blue. He's beating all over. And they even put a crown of thorns on his head. And yes, it must have hurt for those thorns to pierce his skull. But but they did this to humiliate this so-called king of the Jews too. And so this is how they treated Jesus. This is how they treated the creator of the world, the son of God. They beat him. They kicked him over and over again. They mocked him. And when they were almost done, they laid him down on a cross. 
and they took the spikes and they drove those spikes through his hands. They drove those spikes through his feet at this place called Calvary. They raised the cross for everyone to see. And it was here that Jesus was put on display for a crowd that had gathered. And the Bible says that at this point, he barely even resembled that of a man. And so why would you blame someone for, for looking at Jesus, for looking at this so, so-called Son of God on this day and thinking to yourself, really trust God? I mean, seriously, this is the one that I'm supposed to put my trust and my faith in? I mean, where is this God now? My, my Greek professor, Dr. Shively, taught me uh, that the Greek word for trust is the word patho. Uh, and it means uh, literally to trust in something, to trust in someone with, with great confidence, with absolute certainty. And, and so the people, you know, they're sitting here, they're standing here on this day, and they're looking at their Jesus, and they're thinking, seriously? I mean, this is the one I'm supposed to trust? This is the God that I'm supposed to trust, the one who, who is going through this right now? I mean, where is this so-called God that he talked about? And it's easy why to see so many doubted. I mean, it happens today. I mean, think about how easy it is to trust God in the good times of your life. I mean, when things are going well and when you're facing or experiencing little to no troubles, it's easy to trust God when things are going well, but it's not so easy to trust God when things get difficult or or when life gets complicated or when it seems to get really dark around you. And so we all come across these situations from time to time where we're forced to ask to ourselves, do I trust God? You know, can I trust God in this good season of my life right now? Or, because I'm going through this difficult season right now, do I really trust God in the dark too? Because again, it's one thing to trust God in the good, but it's another to trust Him in the bad or in the dark. And we're forced to ask, will I trust God even now? Well, Now, what makes this even more challenging is when we take into account that the very forces of evil, since the very beginning of creation, every force of hell has, has been working to undermine and challenge the very character of God. And so you have to deal with that too. You know, not only do you deal with your own doubts, but there's a force in this world, there is an evil present in this world that, that, that is moving you from God, that is calling into question the very character of God. And so you've got to deal with that. I mean, think about it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were there and there was the serpent and, and he wasn't simply trying to sell them a piece of fruit. You know, what was the question that he was asking? Do you trust God? Do you really trust God? You know, will you trust him to wait or will you take this for yourself? Remember, it's easier to trust God in the good times but it's not so easy in the dark. As I mentioned to you last week, uh, my little girl Kate, my two-and-a-half-year-old two Kate, is, is terrified of thunderstorms. And uh, wouldn't you know it, this past Wednesday night, we had a pretty big thunderstorm uh, right around bedtime, and so she was a wreck. I mean, just, just, just a mess. And, and I don't know about you, but here in Noblesville, we had a lot of hail. We had about 10 minutes of hail, and the wind was blowing, and the clouds. I mean, it was a pretty spectacular sight. Well, what I didn't mention to you last week is that I, too, uh, was terrified of thunderstorms as a kid. And, and, and since discovering that Kate is terrified of thunderstorms, I've apologized to my parents. I just, I'm sorry I had no idea what I was putting you through, but, but I was terrified of them. And I'm not so much terrified of them today, but now I'm fascinated with them. And so it, kind of a way of dealing with that fear is to be fascinated, is to always know what's going on. And so anytime there's a serious thunderstorm, I'm all over the news, all over the Internet. I mean, I kind of become like Jim Canpore. And, you know, the, the sirens started going off at our house on Wednesday night. My wife was gone, so I sent the kids to the basement. They really had no idea what was happening, so they were just excited to go play for a little while longer before bed. But again, I was at the front door and the back door and looking outside. And it was like, if there's going to be a tornado, I want to see it first, you know. And then I trust that I can get to the uh, basement in time to avoid the storm, you know. But 
I don't know about you, but, but storms at night make me especially nervous because it's difficult to see what's happening and you don't really know and understand what's going on. You know, they always seem to be more severe in the dark, whether you can see what's coming or not. And it's kind of like that in life, too. Life is always a little bit frightening, always a little bit more challenging when you're in the dark, when you don't know what's going on. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, we're continuing on here in this narrative, says this, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Now, zero hour in Jerusalem was 6 a.m., And most scholars believe that Jesus was crucified around the third hour or 9 a.m. in the morning. Now that means that he was still living at the sixth hour at noon. And around noon, the Bible says that darkness came over all of the land. And as one person said, it was almost as if God was not about to let the sun shine on one of the darkest moments in all of history. Verse 46 says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Now, the word cried out here means to to shout, uh, to scream. But it's interesting that there's a prefix here that it says to shout up or to scream up with, with a deep anguish, to cry out with a passionate groan. You know, up to this point, Jesus had experienced this excruciating pain from all of the torture. He had endured all of this abuse and this mocking, and he never screamed or complained at once or at any time. But the moment that God forsook him, in this ninth hour, you know, when the presence of God left Jesus alone there on the cross, what does the Bible say he did? He says he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's our statement for today. It's our red letter statement for today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he was brutally beaten. These nails were driven through his hands and his feet, and he didn't complain once. But now God withdraws himself from the presence of Jesus on the cross, and he screams out in agony. Now, Matthew has preserved these words for us. Eli, Eli, Laba Sabachthani, uh, in the Aramaic language. Now, Aramaic was the native language that Jesus would have grown up speaking, and it's likely here as an added emphasis on this deep pain and this deep anguish that Jesus experienced. Again, it wasn't so much the physical pain that was disturbing to him, from, even from these wounds that caused him to cry out, but it was the very absence of God at the ninth hour as God removed himself from Jesus. Now, let me show you something else that's also interesting. All through the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus continually refers to God as his Father in heaven. It's the word Abba. Uh, I mean, when translated, it really means daddy. It's an intimate word. But not here. Notice what Jesus, that he doesn't call him father. He doesn't call him daddy. But here in this moment, he refers to him as God. And again, it just sheds light on the fact that there is this new distance between God and Jesus that's never been there before. It's an alienation that Jesus has never experienced. Now, this is one of the saddest, darkest hours in all of the scripture, darkest moments And it's pretty complicated, too, this statement of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And scholars have been debating this for for hundreds of years, this meaning of this statement asking, how is it possible for God to forsake Jesus? I mean, really, how is it possible for God to forsake God? I mean, honestly, there's no clear explanation because we can't fully comprehend how God can be God, how he can be the Son of God, and yet in some way forsake himself. I mean, it's challenging. Uh, Some say it's really a mystery. It's confusing. And yet in a weird sort of way, 
it's almost appropriate. You know, because almost everyone, at one time or another, including many of you here, will will experience, will, will go through something, a difficult time where you're left wondering, where is God right now? Why this? Why do I have to go through this? Where is my God right now? Watch this story. started um, when we met in college and we got married almost seven years ago and we decided um, it was around 2007 that we were ready to try to have kids so end of November of that year we found out that we were expecting and we were really excited and we we told a few of our friends up here close family as well we were going to wait until we were Christmas, surprised at Christmas. To surprise everyone. <clears throat> That's right. Um, but unfortunately, we couldn't do that. We found out in December, I think it was December 17th, mm-hmm. that uh, I was having a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were about brokenhearted. 12, I yeah, mean, we were, we were very, about 12 about weeks. eight weeks along. Yeah, eight weeks, sorry. But still, I mean, <clears throat> when you find out you're pregnant, you're very excited. And you want to share the news. And you start making all these plans. You know, we weren't so far into the pregnancy that, you know, I was too concerned about anything at that point other than, well, you know, we'll just try again. Easter of 2008, uh, we found out we were pregnant again. We both at that point, after having experienced the first miscarriage, were very excited, you know, at the prospects of being pregnant again so soon. We got back from a trip and realized something maybe wasn't quite right. just in the back of our minds, we kind of knew. And so we went to get everything checked out, and the baby no longer had a heartbeat. I guess more than anything, I was numb because <clears throat> the doctor had explained what would have to be done as far as you know delivering the baby, because Stacy was so far along. And, and I was just thinking how hard that was going to be for her uh, emotionally and, and maybe physically. So. I was trying to be strong uh, for her and uh, help her through it. We knew that we would get through it, but it was just hard having to share all of that with the people that we loved and that loved us so much. Um, But we, we knew what we had to do and we knew we wanted to meet him. And we found out we were having a boy. Um, we named him Cooper. Named him Cooper. I'd always wanted to name my first son Cooper, um, short for Cooperstown. <clears throat> Me being a big baseball fan, so. Anyway, he was beautiful. Um, so. And we found out it was a chromosomal issue. Yeah. And it was sort of a sporadic thing that probably wouldn't happen again. And again, we were successful, uh, getting pregnant quite soon, actually. And then we found out um, that the baby's, back of the baby's neck, there was a lot of fluid. Lymphatic um, fluid had begun to build up. And they always measure that. The baby no longer had a heartbeat. After 
we lost Callie, was her name. Um, we were just, <sighs> sort of felt like time was standing still. And even though we had so many people around us to support us and try to lift us up, life was moving on for them, but we were very stuck. I just felt like I personally was in a very dark place and um, it was just hard to get out of. I mean, there were glimpses of hope on some days where I felt happy, but we were just thinking, you know, what are the odds that something like this, something this devastating would happen to us three times? So I just remember that, you know, at that time feeling so angry and, and just so maybe even disappointed with God. What, what is your plan here? Why? You know, we're good people. We, we try really hard to follow you and do your will. And, and why? Why? Why are you letting this happen? Why? And Jesus asked that question. Why, God? Why are you forsaking me? Uh, we can only imagine that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was looking up that cross, looking at her son, thinking, why? You know, the disciples probably asked why, too. And, and for the young couple that, that can't get pregnant or maybe has experienced another loss, you know, they ask why. And when the teen, you know, who watches another man walk out of their mom's life, it's natural to ask why. And for the parents who learn that their you know, child has a condition, it's easy to ask why. And when the person on the other end of the phone uh, mouths those words that you've always dreaded hearing, you can see why some people ask why. And they ask why for good reason too. I mean, no one would really blame them for asking why. I've done it too. You know, sometimes it's difficult to understand why things happen like they do. And the brutal truth is, is that we're not always going to understand there's not always going to be a clear answer to every question that we have. And as, as we think about God's part in it all, we have to be reminded that we don't have the benefit of seeing the world from God's perspective. You know, we only see part of the story, but he sees the whole story. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 in the message says this, We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing Him directly just as He knows us. You know, the Apostle Paul is saying here, you know, we only see part of the story. Again, we don't have the advantage or the perspective of seeing the entire story. You know, it's kind of like when you go on a great trip or something, and maybe you go on a trip and you're not able to take your spouse or to take your kids, and you experience something. You see something that's absolutely amazing, and you want to come back and tell them, and maybe you show them pictures, and you try as best as you can to describe it, and they nod their head and they smile, and, and they enjoy hearing the story, but they can't quite see it or understand it the way that you understand it because they don't have the same advantage. It's kind of like that with God. We can't see it all. We can only see a glimpse, and so we can only partially understand, but God understands everything. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts 
than your thoughts. You know, with these words, God reminds us that we won't always understand. And so when your employer tells you that they don't need you any longer or the bank tells you that your time is up, you know, we don't always understand. And it's easy, it's natural for us to ask why, but that doesn't mean that God is absent. It doesn't mean that he no longer loves us. It doesn't mean that he's no longer at work. It doesn't mean that he's done with you. Now, does it mean then that we have to live our life straining in the fog? You know, does it mean then that we have to settle for the dark? You know, live our life in this mist, as Paul calls it. You know, what can we know? Is there anything that we can understand? And the answer is yes. There are things that we can understand. There is good news. There's good news that we can lean on. There's truths that that are certain even when times don't seem so certain. And the good news is that God's word gives us some important words that we can embrace when we don't understand, when we feel lost, when we feel like we're standing in the dark. And so what can we lean on? What are these great promises in Scripture? If you're taking notes, you can write these down. There's a few of them. But the first truth that we can embrace is this, that God is good. And I tell you that with confidence this morning, that He is good, that He is unchanging, that He is a loving God. And I want you here to say, hear me say with confidence that He is good, that no matter what you're going through in your life, God is good. Mark chapter 10, verse 18 says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know, God is good. And here's why that's important for you to know. Because most of the time, if all the time, we tend to project our situations on God, you know. And so when things are going good, we, we, we tend to say, well, God is good. You know, he is blessing me. He loves me. He is a good God because of these great things that I'm going through. But when we're not going through good times, when we're going through these difficult times or these dark times, it's easy to say, why? God, why am I in this place right now? I don't get it. Where are you? Are, are you absent? Have you abandoned me here in this place? Again, for most of us, we don't have the perspective that God has. Uh, it's kind of like when the president you know, goes up in a plane to kind of uh, take view of the damage, maybe of a flooded area or something. He, he's got a perspective that those on the ground aren't able to see because he sees things from this different perspective. You know, God is that way too. God transcends all time he is not contained you know to the present he sees it all he sees the whole story he is sovereign he sees where we come from and where we are going and that's what we have to hold on to that god is good and and that means that when your worst fear comes true when you find out that it is cancer god is good And, and when the nightmare of your abuse from your past creeps into your life wanting to haunt you once again god is good And when you're grieving the loss of a loved one who used to take care of you, maybe put you on the school bus every day, God is good. He is good forever. Uh, He is good for always. And it will never change. And you can count on this. The second thing is this, is not only is God good, but he is for you. Uh, You can say with confidence that God is for me. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, You can insert your own pronoun there. If God is for me, who can be against me? You know, it's like when I played basketball in high school. Uh, It was always special, and my dad made every effort to be at all of my games, to be at all of my high school basketball games. And, And it was almost like I could hear his voice from the crowd saying, great job with the clipboard, Paul. You know, great job getting the water bottle for your teammate who's actually playing. You know, you're doing a great job there on the bench, you know. Well, he didn't really say that, but even though that was kind of my reality, you know, spending more time on the bench, I always felt my dad's encouragement. He always had something to say to me afterwards, you know, that that encouraged me. He, He was always there. You know, the good news for you and me is that God is for you. 
Oh, he is so for you. And the Bible says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end, that he put the stars in the place, that he put the Rocky Mountains on this earth and the Pacific Ocean. He decided which direction the Amazon River would flow and that caterpillars would one day become butterflies. But do you know what? You are so much more important than any of these things. God cares for you and he is for you. And Scripture says that you are way more important than all of these things. And if that's the case... It doesn't matter what we go through. It doesn't matter what we experience. The God of heaven is for you. He believes in you. He has a dream and a purpose for your life, and it is beyond anything that any of us can comprehend. And you can count on that, that he is good, he is for you. And the third thing is this, that God is with you. That you can say with confidence in your heart and in your life, no matter what situation you may face, that God is with you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the very end of this verse, notice those words and quotations. God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And never means never. Uh, It is absolute, and that is good news, that no matter how alone you feel, no matter how greatly you may have been betrayed, no matter how far you've wandered from God, God promises that he will never leave you because he is good, because he is for you, and he is with you. Now, now here's what happens in, in people's lives as they grow and as they mature in their relationship with God. The more they grow, the more they get to know God, the less they ask why. You know, instead of asking God why, you know, the question becomes what? You know, instead of asking, God, why am I going through this right now? The big question becomes, God, what is it that you're trying to do in my life in this particular season? What is it that you want me to learn? What, what is it that you're doing here and right now? And what can I take away from this? God is good. He is for you. And he is with you. And he will never, ever forsake you. In the way that he did Jesus, you know, he, he forsook Jesus on the cross. He left Jesus. You know, when that sixth hour struck and the sky turned black and the ground began to shake, God was absent from Jesus in a way that Jesus had never, ever experienced before. And in that moment, Jesus cried out because he had never felt this alone, this isolated. Why? Why did that have to happen? I mean, there's that word again. Why did God forsake Jesus? Why did God do that to Jesus? It's simple. He did that to Jesus so that he would never, ever have to do it to you or to me. Why did God forsake Jesus? The answer is here in this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, why did God forsake Jesus? So that Jesus could become sin for us. You know, Jesus became great on the cross as he shouldered, as he took upon himself the weight of the sin of the entire world. You know, that's the sin from the past, that's the sin of the present, that's the sin of the future. And and what is that sin? It's the sin of murder, Uh, it's the sin of adultery or gossip or lust or lying or racism or abuse, uh, of cheating, of an affair or of even hatred, that every sin that has ever existed, that will ever exist or exist today, Jesus became that sin for us. He he took every bit of it upon himself. He took that sin on his own life. He hung there on the cross. And when that happened, God had to look away because God's eyes are too holy to be that close to sin. You know, Jesus died on the cross so that we can be forgiven, you know, so that we could become great in God's eyes and experience his overwhelming, his transforming power and love. And in that moment, when everyone was standing there, looking around the cross, looking at Jesus, asking why, struggling to understand, God was making Jesus sin for us so that, again, you and I 
could become the very righteousness of God. God forsook Jesus so that He wouldn't have to do the same for us. And He is good, and He is for you, and He will never, ever leave you. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what you have gone through, or no matter what may come your way, know this, He is good, He is for you, and He will never, ever leave you. in another Bible study in a small group that was very much like family. And a group of women surrounded me and they laid hands on me. And uh, we all prayed and I could feel the heat just radiating from my stomach because my hands were there and we just knew. We found out that we were expecting about a month or two after that. And I just knew that everything was gonna be okay. Um, and it was a very, very freeing and redeeming feeling. Yeah, my daughter, uh, Camilliana Henderson, was born uh, April 20th, uh, shortly before 8 a.m. Her middle name, Liana, actually means uh, my God has answered. She is the sweetest baby. God answered our prayers. And we realized throughout that pregnancy, and especially the day that she was born, um, you know, that God is sovereign. He knows how to run the show. You know, he, he has a will laid out for our lives, and, and he does love us.